All right, welcome to Adult Bible Fellowship. As we continue our study in the Gospel of Mark, we're in Mark chapter 4. So if you got your Bibles, please open with me to Mark chapter 4. We'll start at verse 1 in a moment. And uh, we'll be looking at uh, some of Jesus' teachings, his parables this morning. Uh, as you're finding your places, as we're turning there, let's go ahead and just pray and ask the Lord to bless our time together. Father, thank you, Lord, so much for your word. I thank you for the great uh, worship that we had already this morning. And now, Lord, as we sit together and <clears throat> open your word, I pray that it would speak to us, that we would have ears to hear and listen to what you have and let the spirit work in our hearts, Lord. Help us to be sensitive to him uh, as he leads us, Lord. And we pray this in Jesus' name, amen. All right, we'll start in Mark chapter 4 this morning and a very familiar passage of Mark. In fact, very familiar passage in the Gospels. Um, this passage has been preached about, it's been talked about, it's been written about um, and discussed so much over the centuries since it was written. And um, most of the time, uh, there's a heading above chapter 4 of Mark, and my Bible has the heading, The Parable of the Sower which, how many of your Bibles say that at the top, parable of the sower? Yeah. So that's what we normally call it, but really, uh, it's about more than just the sower. The sower is only mentioned briefly um, in the text. It's really about the seed, and then most of the conversation surrounds the four types of soil. And so, as we, as we step into this teaching, this parable, this, this is uh, the first time we'll, we have an extended amount of Jesus' teaching in Mark. Um, we need to understand, and I just wanted to say this right from the beginning. The four soils represent four types of hearts this morning, okay? So as we look at that, as we look at this parable, we need to understand that we're looking at different hearts that, that people have and that how they tend to respond. And so... The question I wanted us to start with, just before we even read the first verse, is to just keep this in the back of our minds and ask ourselves this question, what kind of a heart, and the heart and the mind are, are so connected in Scripture, what kind of a heart or mind do I have? How do I respond to the seed when it is sown in my heart? That is the driving question, I believe, behind this parable and the thing that we can apply um, into our lives. So we're going to look at this and we're going to work through this outline and I hope we get done with um, the introduction part and we'll, I believe, cover two of the soils today and then Lord willing, next week we'll cover the other two. Uh, but first of all, we're going to look at the setting. So we're going to kind of situate ourselves there in Galilee, if we can, in our minds and, and picture what it might have looked like as we look and open up with verse number one of Mark chapter four. It says this, and again, he, Jesus, began to teach by the sea and a great multitude was gathered to him so that he got into a boat and sat in it on the sea and the whole multitude was on the land facing the sea. So here's, here's kind of the picture. Um, by now, the seaside was a common teaching venue for Jesus. This is not the first time in Mark that we have seen him teaching at the seashore. And so there, there he is. And remember, the, the last time we talked about this, he requested a boat in case the crowd got 
uh, too, too close and kind of crushed in on him. And now we see him using this boat as this kind of floating pulpit there on the Sea of Galilee. Uh, this also enabled more people to actually hear him uh, if he was out on the water a little ways. Um, it says this in, in some of the um, uh, readings that I did in, in one uh, commentary. It said, exactly where Jesus taught cannot be said for sure, but a possible location is a natural amphitheater situated halfway between Capernaum and Tabga to the south where the land slopes gently down to a lovely bay. Israeli scientists have verified that the Bay of Parables can transmit a human voice effortlessly to several thousand people on shore. And there was probably several thousand people the day that Jesus was uh, teaching from the boat. And this is a photo of it. And again, we don't know for sure if this is the spot or not there on the Sea of Galilee, Um, but that could be it. I mean, if you can just picture several thousand people in a semicircle around that bay and Jesus kind of out there in the middle as his voice carried across uh, the waters. Let's move on to verse number two. It says, then he taught them many things by parables and said to them in his teaching. So now Mark begins one of only two teaching discourses by Jesus. Matthew has five or six lengthy discourses. Luke has more than that. But Mark, remember, is focusing mainly on what Jesus did uh, rather than emphasizing what Jesus said. And so he, um, most of Mark is action. It's immediate. It's going from here and then going there and then going to another place. Um, but here he pauses and records for us, of course, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, uh, some of Jesus' teaching. So Jesus taught almost everything, if not everything, especially to the crowds by way of parables. Uh, the Lexham Bible Dictionary says that a parable is a story or saying that illustrates a truth using comparison, hyperbole, or simile. It can be a model, an analogy, or an example. Uh, the word parable means to place one thing alongside another as a way to compare, but also to draw the two things together, give something that is easily understood and how it is similar to something that is more difficult uh, to understand. We do find in Mark 4.34 that when he was speaking to the crowds, it was always in parables. It says that, but without a parable, he did not speak to them. And when they were alone, that is Jesus with the 12, he explained all things to his disciples, which we're going to see him do in this, in this passage. So a question might come into our minds. Why did Jesus teach with parables? Well, actually, Mark answers that. Jesus answers it, actually, in a, in a part of the passage we'll look at, Lord willing, next week. But I wanted to touch on it as we begin and introduce this um, parabolic section. Uh, why would Jesus use parables? Why not just teach the truth plainly? Why not just come out and say what, what he's getting at? Why use the earthly story? Uh, well, parables were designed to both reveal and to conceal truth. Jesus was always very judicious and wise about how much information he shared and with whom he shared it. Uh, 
The reason for that is many people were not ready or willing. They were not ready or willing to receive the plain truth of his teaching. And so he reserved those explanations of the plain truth of his teaching for those that wanted to know truth, especially for the 12. They wanted to know. They were his disciples. They were his followers. And so uh, that's what he would do. Uh, He gives us a similar warning to be careful about how we share truth with people, to be sensitive to the the reception of the truth. Um, In Matthew 7, verse 6, this is part of the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus gave this instruction, do not give what is holy to the dogs, nor cast your pearls before swine, lest they trample them under their feet and turn and tear you in pieces. So how we disclose truth is important. Jesus took it seriously. He was careful and wise about how he used discernment. And that's really what he's doing here with these parables. He's using discernment in how he shares the truth of God's word. And so I believe that that is kind of a picture of uh, the the parables, if you will. Um, I want you to think about a seed. You've all seen a seed, right? seen one or held seeds in your hand. Uh, When we look at the seed, we're not seeing the plant that's going to come from it, right? We're just seeing that little capsule of life called a seed. Um, A familiar seed for, I think, all of us that's recognizable is the sunflower seed. Um, And we look at that sunflower seed, and we know that all the information for a sunflower plant is hidden inside of the sunflower seed, correct? If I plant a sunflower seed, what am I going to get? A sunflower plant, right? Um, I I believe that this is kind of a picture of a parable and why Jesus maybe used seeds, maybe one of the reasons why. Because uh, just like the sunflower plant is hidden It's encapsulated inside this shell, this husk, this seed called the sunflower seed. Uh, So the truth of the parable, the heavenly spiritual uh, meaning, is hidden inside the seed of the parable, which are the seed of the, uh, yeah, the parable, which is the earthly physical story. So when Jesus is teaching with parables, He is sowing seeds. He's giving these small encapsulated packages that contain these large, amazing truths. And so the truth is hidden, but it's not impossible to understand. Jesus was teaching this way to give the people the information with the challenge for them to say, but what do you mean by that? That's the question he was looking for the Jewish people he was teaching to ask. What, what do you mean by that? And that's exactly what his disciples did, as we're going to see in this passage. So the sower doesn't sow the plant, does he? He sows the seed, which is what Jesus was doing. And I believe that's why Jesus asked them, he asked them this rhetorical question, and we're jumping around a little bit in the, in the passage this morning, But he said to the disciples when they asked what the parable meant, this was his response, do you not understand this parable? How then will you understand 
all the parables. All the parables, I think, are like seeds. They are spiritual truth encapsulated in a physical story. So if one is to understand the parables, they must understand this fact. Always look for the deeper spiritual meaning. Always ask the question, what is this seed going to produce? What kind of plant is, is this seed? That's, spiritually speaking, what Jesus was looking for. Now, he, we're going to find out that the seed is the word of God. And, I, and again, I don't want to get ahead of that but because we're going to get to it um, in the passage. But just consider for a moment, um, we look at the parables. Do we believe the parables are the word of God? Yes, okay, good. We're awake. Um, why do we believe that? Because they're right here in Scripture, right? Well, this wasn't written while Jesus was walking around on earth. The Old Testament had been, um, but not, not any of the New Testament at this point in time that we're reading in Mark. So Jesus is going to give a pretty strong ex- expression and, and challenge. He's going to say, look, the teaching I'm doing is the word of God. It is equal to the Torah. It is equal to the writings and the scrolls of the prophets that you read about in the synagogue every week. It is just as powerful as the Psalms and the Proverbs in way the, the truth that they're expressing. Jesus is making sure we understand that his parables weren't just earthly stories with heavenly meanings. They were, in fact, the word of God, the very word of God. And uh, this is where, and this has been, uh, Pastor Rich has been promoting this concept of biblical literacy. Jesus was calling his disciples and all that were listening to these parables to biblical literacy. You must know the word to understand the parable. You must have a connection. Uh, You must have a literacy of scripture to see the spiritual truth that's hidden in these parables. So I say these things as introductory, and as we, uh, just one more comment, a couple of more comments here as we, as we introduce this, um, this study, this section of Mark. Um, verse 3 and verse 9 are the beginning and the ending of the parable. They're like these bookend statements that Jesus makes that kind of parenthetically holds the passage together. Verse 3, what's the command there? Listen, Jesus doesn't start as far as I know, and somebody's going to look it up and prove me wrong, but I don't think any other parables start this way. Listen, listen, behold, a sower went out to sow. What's the command in verse 9? What's the word that's similar to listen? Hear. And he said to them, he who has ears to hear, let him hear. That doesn't mean just hear the sound of my voice. There's a deeper meaning there. So he puts these commands at the beginning and at the ending of this specific parable. Listen here. Listen here. You need to grasp this. And I think this also points back to his statement to the, uh, to the disciples. If you don't understand this parable, how will you understand uh, the others? And so He's saying what I'm about to say is important. Now, one more thing as introduction, as we look at this. We've talked about the literary device that Mark uses. Who remembers what that's called? The sandwich, thank you. The Mark and sandwich 
If you're not familiar with that, um, it's a literary device where Mark will begin one uh, section of scripture, a narrative. Then he will interrupt it, insert a, a second narrative in there without finishing the first one. And when he's done with the second one, he puts the first one on there. So we, we look at it like a sandwich. The two slices of bread are how he starts and ends and the cheese, if you will, and the grilled cheese in the middle. Um, if you don't like grilled cheese, um, I've got another um, thing to show you in a moment. But here is the text, how it's laid out. So in verses 3 through 9, we have the first slice of bread, which is where the parable is given. Then in verses, if you skip down to the bottom, verses 14 to 20 is the other slice of bread. That's where the parable is explained. But there in the middle, in verses 10 to 13, Jesus gives us, and this is, we'll expand on this. I've touched on the purpose of parables already, but we'll expand on it a lot more next week, Lord willing. Verses 10 to 13, the purpose of parables is kind of the cheese. Now, if you don't like grilled cheese, you can think of it like an Oreo cookie, okay? There wasn't Oreos back then, but we can call these Markin Oreos. So um, today, what we're going to do is we're going to take the two wafers um, of this cookie, so to speak, and we're going to study them together. So we're going to jump back and forth between the parable and the explanation and go back and forth that way. And then um, we'll pick up where we left off next week. And then, Lord, again, Lord willing, next week we'll look at that filling in the middle. My kids like to do this. They scrape all the filling off. They dip the cookies in milk, and then they make a ball out of the filling. I, it's just, I don't know why they do this. I think it's gross, but that's um, just a little mental lint for you to know what goes on in the steel household has nothing to do with um, what we're talking about. So let's move into this parable. Um, we start with the sower, and there we are back in Mark 4, verse 3 again, with that command, listen, listen. Behold, a sower went out to sow. A sower went out to sow. Now, the sower is never named, but based on the nature of the seed, which are for Jesus... They're his parables, right? His spiritual truth encapsulated in an earthly story. So the sower is never named, but based on the nature of the seed, the parables, and the nature of Jesus' teaching ministry, which was sowing the seed, without a parable he did not teach them. I'm paraphrasing, but basically teaching with parables. Uh, I really believe that the sower in the immediate context is Jesus himself. Jesus is identifying himself as the sower of the seed. Now, by extension, anyone who spreads Jesus' teachings is also a sower. So we can be sowers of the seed. Um, but here, I think in, the, uh, in Jesus is trying to introduce them to his teaching. Remember, if you don't understand this parable, how will you understand the rest? And so uh, he's sowing. And what is he sowing? Well, um, he doesn't say it right away, but everyone in the crowd would have immediately understood exactly what he was talking about. He wasn't S-E-W-I-N-G, sowing um, a fabric. He was sowing seed, casting seed. So we see that uh, there, a sower went out to what? Sow. Sowing was the first century method of planting seeds in the ground. It was literally casting the seeds by hand, out onto the field, okay? And um, so that's the physical story. Now, if we jump to verse 14, we're going to the other slice of bread, the other wafer in the cookie. Uh, 
Jesus now is explaining the parable. Now notice, he still doesn't identify the sower. Again, I really believe it's Jesus in the immediate context. But notice, what does the sower sow? Not physical seed, but Jesus is trying to teach them that the sower sows the word. The sower sows the word. So the seed is the word. Matthew, in his parallel passage, calls it the seed of, or I'm sorry, the word of the kingdom, which fits with Matthew's portrait of Christ, which is Jesus as the king of the Jews. Remember, Mark's portrait is the suffering servant. Uh, Luke calls it, in Luke 8.11, Jesus explains that as now the parable is this, the seed is the word of God. So Mark stops at the word, and Luke explains a little bit more the word of God. And so in Jesus' immediate context, the seeds are his parables, his teachings. Um, Today, when we're sharing the word, when we're sowing the seed, we might also use parables sometimes, right? To help, especially in children's ministry, to help them understand spiritual truth. What do we use? Object lessons. We use things that are physical that kids are going to know. And we do this with teens. We do it with adults as well because we all need help. Sometimes understanding difficult to uh, understand passages of Scripture. So sometimes we use parables. Sometimes, though, we don't use parables. Are we still sowing the seed even if we don't use a parable? Yes. Paul expands on the the idea of the seed using that illustration. Um, And so whenever we share the gospel, uh, whether it's from the pulpit here in an ABF class, uh, in Sunday school or Awana or Summer Quest, or we're at a coffee shop with our friends or in a backyard or a front porch, we're talking about Scripture, maybe in just conversation or maybe we're witnessing or whatever the case is, we are sowing the seed, okay? Now, one thing to keep aware of before we move into um, the soils, when we come to parables of, with the use of seeds, it's not always representing the word of God, okay? Seeds and parables can represent many other things. We're gonna see that later in Mark 4, but sometimes the seed represents the kingdom of God. Sometimes seed represents people or money or lifestyle or service, just to name a few. Jesus used the seed analogy to um, help explain many things. But here in this parable, it's clearly, because we have it explained for us, representing the word of God. So now we're going to dive into the soils, okay? The soils themselves. Remember that there's going to be four types of soil, as I said at the very beginning. Each type of soil represents a type of heart, type of heart. So as we read this, and study this, we must ask ourselves the question, which kind of soil, which kind of heart best illustrates my own heart as we go through? So just keep that in mind. That's our application out of this text is which kind of soil uh, is, is my heart. So we find this in verses four through eight and then explained in verses 15 to 20. So let's get into Um, the first soil, which is the wayside soil. I did not get all creative and alliterate all these. I just called them what Jesus called them. So we're going to start with the wayside soil, and we see that verse number four in the parable. 
And it happened as he, the sower, sowed that some seed fell by the wayside and the birds of the air came and devoured it. Okay, so let's focus on the physical part first. Around the outside of the field, uh, they created the boundary of the field were these pathways. Um, The path, the soil on the pathway was constantly walked on. That was the purpose. So you didn't have to go traipsing across freshly planted fields. Um, There was a pathway, a wayside to walk around them. Think about the condition of the soil on a footpath. We've all walked on dirt footpaths before. Uh, is, it, is it nice and soft and, and pliable, or is it really, really hard and pressed down? It's hard. It's packed down, right? It's been constantly walked on. It's been trodden down, beaten flat, hard. Um, do you think the waysides were ever cultivated like the fields were? No. Never cultivated because that's not where they wanted the seed. They wanted the seed in the fields, and they wanted some way to walk around the fields, to be able to get around them without walking across them. So the wayside soil never cultivated, never plowed. It was for foot traffic, not for planting. And so that, that means it made a really great bird feeder, right? So the seed that hit the wayside soil that was hard and packed down, the seeds were not able to penetrate the hardened soil. So what did they do? They laid right on top. Uh, easy pickings for hungry birds. So let's look now at Jesus' explanation of this. So we've got, we've got that picture in our mind, this pathway, some seeds accidentally coming off the field. The sower is just broadcasting them. Also, just a little kind of an aside, this, is this sower being really, really careful about how he sows his seed? No, he's broadcasting it. He's just flinging it everywhere, Right? I think that's another little clue. Uh, was Jesus willing to teach anyone that would listen? Yeah. Did he know the hearts that were hardened? Yep. Yeah. Did he still teach them? Yep. Yes. So um, let's look at his explanation in verse 15. Now he's, he's explaining this just to the disciples now. So we're, we've left the crowds. We're alone with the 12 and Jesus. And now in in the quietness of that time, Jesus is explaining, and these are the ones by the wayside where the word was sown. When they hear, Satan comes immediately, there's our mark in word, immediately, and takes away the word that was sown, notice, in their what? Hearts. So how do you know the soil is the hearts? It's right there. It's right there for us. So this is exactly what happened when Jesus would teach his parables. Okay, so let's zoom back out to Jesus and the crowds, the scribes, the Pharisees. Most people would listen to a parable because it was a neat story. Okay, they couldn't pull up their phone and watch YouTube or Netflix. They didn't have all the entertainment. So when somebody was telling a story, everyone listened. It was interesting. Um, And I think to some degree that's still true today. But in any case... Um, they were listening to this nice story, but it really made no difference in their lives. Their hearts were hardened uh, to the truth. Um, and you think about the scribes that in chapter 3, we'll, we'll talk about that in a moment, but um, Satan is 
easily able, when the heart is hard, to remove the truth that's in that seed before it has any chance of getting pressed down into that wayside soil uh, because of the hardness of the heart. So maybe you've experienced this. Maybe you have been this person at one time in your life where people share truth with you, maybe the gospel, maybe other truth, and it just didn't make any effect. You just didn't care. It was shrug it off and move on. Uh, And so uh, whether we've done that or maybe someone we've talked to has done that, I'm sure we've all seen that in some degree. So because the heart is so hard, the word of God is not embedded. It has no chance to uh, germinate and grow. So it's very easy for Satan to come along and explain that away. And we see this today with people that are uh, just really angry. I call them angry atheists um, that, that are just, they, they hear something about the Bible. Maybe it's about creation or maybe it's about the sanctity of life and, and the, the abortion issue. And they just become furious that you would have a different view. And no matter what you say to them, you, you, can, you can explain that that little life in the womb has a heartbeat after this amount of time and then fingerprints after this many weeks and, and it's a real live person inside. And nothing you say will penetrate that, right? That is a hard heart that does not want to hear truth. Satan is, what's happening is you're telling the truth and Satan is literally coming and grabbing those seeds that you're sowing almost right off the ground, right off the surface of their heart. That's what's happening. Um, And he's whispering lies, he's undermining, he's discrediting scripture. Now, pause Mark 4 for a minute, zoom out, and catch the end of Mark 3 that we talked about last week. We talked about the what kind of sin? The unpardonable sin, right? The unforgivable sin which we learned was a matter of the heart. So remember, that sin was the scribes blaspheming the Holy Spirit. And they did that by claiming that his working, the Holy Spirit's working through Jesus to cast out demons, was actually the power of Satan. They were calling the Holy Spirit a a demon, basically, in in a way of speaking. This was an extreme condition of hard-heartedness. I mean, if we saw somebody got a demon cast out of them or someone healed, like the amazing healings or brought back to life that Jesus did, it hopefully would just astound us and it would just be like, no, there's something about this man that's different. This is awesome. This has to be of God. But that's that's not where they went in their minds. So as Jesus is doing these things, it's almost like the seed, right? It's not the parables, but it's Jesus' actions. Are pre- he's presenting himself as the son of God, and he's teaching that way, and he's doing these amazing works to authenticate his message. And it's like those are kind of like seeds in, the, in and of themselves. They're hitting the hard hearts of these scribes, and what is Satan doing? Snatching them away, maybe replacing them with his own seeds of lies and doubt, like oh, that's the power of Beelzebub, not of God. So you can kind of see this happening, even though it's not there on the surface, uh, behind the scenes um, going on. Uh, If you remember when Moses stood before Pharaoh, 
How was Pharaoh's heart? Hard or soft? Hardened. And I know that God did harden his heart, but not before Pharaoh hardened his own heart. Um, In Exodus 8.15, it says, but when Pharaoh saw that there was relief from the plague, he what? Hardened his heart and did not heed them as the Lord had said. God had promised Moses, look, this is going to take a while. Um, This is going to be a process here. Um, But after this, two other separate times, the Bible specifically states with two of the other plagues that Pharaoh hardened his own heart. Now, did God harden his heart? Yes. Just like he said he would. He said, I will harden his heart. But not until Pharaoh had hardened his own heart. And this hard-heartedness is a spiritually blind condition. When one's heart is hardened, they cannot see the truth. It is a blindness that goes on. That's why the Pharisees and the scribes are able to say, it's the power of Satan, not of God. Because they were completely blind to the truth that Jesus um, was doing. And then, of course, his teaching was equally as rejected as his works uh, by those men. And so when one's heart is hardened, they cannot see the truth standing right in front of them. Uh, And they had Jesus, the truth, standing there. They couldn't see him for who he was. Uh, It was true of the Pharaoh. It was true of the scribes of Jesus' day. Um, I'm not going to read this whole thing, but an interesting thing, if just pause in Mark and, and go to Exodus, don't turn there, but just... In the Egyptian um, religious system, there was a strong emphasis on the heart. Okay? And I just I didn't realize this until I recently did some reading on this. And I'll just read a portion of it. If Pharaoh had realized how hard his heart was, he would have been terrified. The Egyptians believed that the heart was the essence of the person and the key to eternal life. Okay, so it's a false religion. Who's the key to eternal life? Jesus Christ, okay? But they, they had an emphasis on the heart, similar to what we do, but, but not the same. Um, many of their temples and tombs, speaking of the Egyptians, depict a heart being weighed on the scales of justice. The heart was important to them. And so um, they have this, um, one of these palaces, they have there records the story of a man that stands before the gods and his heart is weighed in the balance to be found hard or soft to whatever they were worshiping. And so um, they, were in, they were very interested in the heart. They emphasized it in their worship. And if Pharaoh would have realized that, he would have been Uh, terrified. In fact, um, what would have become of a hard-hearted man like Pharaoh in the Egyptian false religion? According to the Egyptians, such a man could never be saved. A man with a hard, heavy heart would be weighed in the balance and found wanting. The weight of his sins would drag him down to destruction. This is out of the Egyptian uh, writings and belief system, okay? But here we have Pharaoh, the king, who is actually worshipped as a god of Egypt with a hard heart, not even realizing it, not even realizing it. Um, And this is what Jesus said about the scribes, their state of rebellion against God. 
that gave Satan credit for the work of the Holy Spirit was their undoing. So as we, uh, before we go to the stony soil, um, just consider the hardness of the heart. Can Christians also have hard hearts? Oh, yes. Um, we, is Satan still like that bird swooping in and grabbing the seeds of truth from our hard hearts at times? Yes, yes. So we need to be aware um, Peter wrote that we should be uh, aware of the enemy that prowls about like a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour, not unlike a bird devouring seeds of truth, okay? So we need to allow God's word to penetrate our hearts, letting that razor-sharp blade do its work. So that's the wayside soil. As uh, we get close to an end here, let's uh, cover the stony soil. And we read about that in verses 5 and 6 back in Mark 4. It says, some fell on stony ground where it did not have much earth. And immediately it sprang up because it had no depth of earth. But when the sun was up, it was scorched. And because it had no root, it withered away. Okay, so unlike the wayside soil, this soil, the stony soil, was soft enough for seed to penetrate and even begin to grow. There was new life, right? If a seed germinates and a plant grows... That is new life. Um, But it was shallow. This is the shallow heart, the stony heart, the shallow heart. So when the seed is planted in this shallow soil, it doesn't have a lot of root. Instead, it uses all its energy to focus on the plant above the ground. Um, And the root, then, it's not able to go, whatever root is there, can't go very deep. Hidden underneath that shallow layer of soil is a stone, a rock, something hard. And so the plant's growth is stunted. It's also not anchored well in the soil. Uh, The roots are unable to reach down to the deeper part of the soil where the moisture is, okay? So when the hot sun starts beating down, it says that the um, plant was scorched and it withered away. Let's look at Jesus' explanation, verse 16. These likewise are the ones sown on stony ground who, when they hear the word, immediately receive it with gladness. Well, that's, that's interesting. So shallow soil equals shallow hearts. But the word is able to penetrate. It's received with gladness. Um, there, are, there were some people that listened to Jesus and received what he said, even believed on him, um, but then we're going to see there were some problems. In John 2, 23, Jesus is at the feast in Jerusalem, um, and I'll pick up there where it's underlined. It says, many believed in his name when they saw the signs which he did, which was the purpose of the signs. He said, if you don't believe my teaching, believe the signs at least. They'll point you to me. Verse 24, but notice, Jesus did not commit himself to them because he knew all men. And had no need that anyone should testify of man, for he knew what was in man. So although these people were believers, John is clear. It's the same word he uses elsewhere for belief, with the verb for faith there. Um, They were not ones that were growing. They were not maturing in their uh, belief. So they're they're believers. They received the word uh, with gladness. Uh, but they weren't ready for the next step. They weren't ready for the next truth. Um, in fact, the very next chapter, we have a man named Nicodemus who comes. 
And I think maybe possibly Nicodemus was part of this group. Remember, he had a lot of confusion, right? When, when he came to, to the Lord, he had been listening to the teaching. He had been trying to understand, and he comes with all these questions. And um, we believe that Nicodemus did come to faith at, at some point. Um, but in any case here, um, just below, and if we bring it back to ourselves now and we think about um, our, our own condition, in verse 17, Jesus continues the explanation, and they have no root in themselves, so endure only for a time. Afterward, when tribulation or persecution arises for the word's sake, immediately they stumble. And so uh, these, I believe, are believers. They, they've been saved. They're living out their Christian life, which is why they're experiencing persecution. Why would an unsaved person, uh, person experience persecution? But, but the, the problem is that they are not mature in their faith. They cannot uh, stand up to the persecution. And so as we think about obeying God, are we going to draw persecution from the world? Yes. We need to be ready for it. We need to actually expect it. The shallow soil hearts of these believers forgot the promise from Jesus in Matthew 5, 10 through 12, where he said, blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when they revile and persecute you and say all kinds of evil against you falsely for my sake. Rejoice and be exceedingly glad for great is your reward in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Jesus is saying, you really need to expect this. It's going to happen. When we live our lives according to God's word, when we live in obedience to God, people are going to notice that and some it will be favorable, but many it won't be. Um, sometimes Jesus rescues us, rescues us from the persecution, but other times he will just give us strength to endure it. He doesn't promise to remove all the persecution. In fact, in this passage, he basically promises there's going to be persecution, but here's how I want you to endure it. In John 15, 20, of another example of this, Remember the word that I said to you. What's he saying? Be rooted. Be rooted in the truth. Remove the stones and, and let the, the soil of your heart stop being so shallow. Remove the stones and distractions and things that are stopping your root from going down. Remember my words that I said to you. A servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, speaking of himself, Jesus, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will keep yours also. So Jesus is saying, look, you need to make sure you're rooted in truth. As we close, turn in your Bibles with me to the book of Ephesians. And we're going to make a quick application and then we're going to be dismissed. But in Ephesians chapter 3, we're going to start reading in verse 16. Ephesians 3, starting at verse 16, we're going to read through verse 19. Ephesians 3, starting at verse 16. Here's Paul's prayer for the Ephesian believers, and by extension, us as well. That he, Jesus Christ, would grant you 
you Christians at Ephesus, you Christians at Union Grove Baptist, that he would grant you according to the riches of his glory to be strengthened with might through his spirit in the inner man that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith that you being rooted and grounded in love may be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the width and length and depth and height to know the love of Christ which passes knowledge that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Paul is praying this prayer on behalf of believers. He's saying to Christians, not unbelievers, he's saying to Christians, be rooted in Christ. Christians, like those in the shallow soil, can be, we can become immature in our faith not rooted and grounded in love and in Christ, but instead withering from the heat of trials or tribulation or persecution. So the application here is clear. We need to strive for spiritual maturity. We need to remove whatever stones are stopping our roots from going deeper into Christ, deeper into love, into the word of God. So whether we're individuals, families, and as a church, and I have this one quote as we conclude. Uh, A.W. Tozer said, a church that is soundly rooted cannot be destroyed, but nothing can save a church whose root is dried up. No stimulation, no advertising campaigns, no gifts of money, and no beautiful edifice can bring back life to the rootless tree. Let's make sure our roots are deep in Christ. Lord willing, next week we'll pick up here where we left off and continue uh, going through the last two soils uh, that Jesus taught us. Let's pray. Father, thank you, Lord, so much for your word. Thank you for, for the truth that lies in there. And Lord, thank you for giving us something to anchor ourselves to. As we think of plants needing that root for life, uh, for the minerals and the, the things it needs to grow, but also uh, to have an anchor Lord, when storms come and when the heat comes, Lord, I just pray that we would be like that tree planted by rivers of water, bringing forth its fruit in its season, Lord. Help us to identify the stones that need to be removed in our, in our hearts, Lord, so that the soil can be deep and nourishing to our souls, Lord. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen.